Hello, and welcome to Life with Ed, the podcast. This is episode number five. I'm so excited you made it to this one, um, if it's your first or your fifth. So it's March, I think, 25th, and it's almost the end of National Nutrition Month. For those of you who aren't dietitians or in the nutrition field, you might not know that, but March is Nutrition Month, and this month I have had so much fun going uh, to three different libraries across the state of Connecticut, teaching kids and families about food and and how to love food. Um, I don't get up there and talk about, you know, this food is healthier than that food. I don't believe in that. Um, I get up there and just want kids to have fun with food and learn to like many different types. So we made some sun butter banana sushi rolls and some apple animal monsters. It was so much fun. I couldn't stop smiling as I saw so many different kids try a food for the first time. It's so rewarding. So thank you to everyone who came out. And if anyone is interested at having an event in their hometown, um, libraries are a great place to do it. And if you're in Connecticut, I'm happy to join you. So, you know, send me an email at worth, W-E-R-T-H, your while, nutrition at gmail.com if you're interested. Other than that, um, I want more listeners. I want more people to hear about eating disorders, about um, the progress you can make, about people's stories, and about treatment, and just what they are and what we can do to help prevent them in our society. So I think the best way to spread this podcast is word of mouth. So find a friend, tell them, or a family member, whatever, and, and get someone new to listen. Let's have a goal together to get twice as many people as are listening now to listen um, by the next podcast. Deal? Okay, cool. So today on the podcast, I have Rebecca Bardwell DeWaco, and I hope I said that right, didn't totally clarify how to say her last name, but she is amazing. She is a director at Walden Behavioral Care in the Connecticut region, and she has so much knowledge on eating disorders and treatment and just the different stages of treatment and how to even, you know, begin talking with someone. And she's really, really knowledgeable about binge eating disorder, which is something I am not as familiar with. So she really shared with me how you would even begin, you know, treating BED and what the differences are um, and the similarities because all eating disorders, you know, definitely have something, something in common. So without any further ado, take a listen to all the amazing things Rebecca has to say. Here we go. So hello, Rebecca. Thanks so much for, um, you know, volunteering to be on my podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So I just wanted to start with how did you get involved in the eating disorder world and the world of, you know, working in recovery? Yeah. Um, I act, I love when people ask me that question. Um, and I really think it was a, a combination of fate being in the right place in the right time and also just my natural instinct of being really always 
passionate about women's empowerment and people's empowerment. Um, I say women's empowerment because my very first job in the field of mental health was in the eating disorder field at the Renfrew Center um, in Coconut Creek, Florida, which was only women. Um, And the Renfrew Center continues to, to treat only women. So it was my first day of graduate school and I said to the woman sitting next to me who was a complete stranger I said you know I should probably get a job in the field before I go through all of this grad school yeah and make sure you know I really like it and she said well I work at the Renfrew Center I can bring your resume and they're always looking for techs and so I said sounds great and she brought my resume in and I immediately was just um overtaken by appreciation and um just felt like this was the population for me. I immediately noticed that these were women who were intelligent, passionate, talented, smart, and these eating disorders that were very curable were really keeping them from thriving. Yeah. And, um, you know, just felt, and, and they were clearly had been through so many different providers and so many different treatments that lacked the specialized knowledge that's necessarily, that's necessary to thoroughly treat eating disorders. And so these women were misunderstood, misdiagnosed, um, and just hadn't received the treatment that they needed. And these eating disorders continued. So I thought, this is it for me. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm meant to do. And just fell in love with the population right away. That's such a unique uh, way to feel because I feel like a lot of times people come into a center or even just outpatient and they're like overwhelmed and shocked um, and scared often. Yeah. Yeah, no, I really just felt like I I can help. I want to help, and um, and these people need um, you know providers that understand and are have specialized training. Right, and so yeah. you're a counselor, right? I'm a licensed professional counselor. Yes. Right, and so what's the role of the the licensed professional counselor in this area and in recovery? So, um, so in so our clinicians in our in our treatment centers and in most treatment centers. Um, typically are responsible for individual therapy, family therapy, group therapy, crisis management, case management. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you do like one-on-one counseling with patients? Or so is I'm the assistant vice president of clinical operations right. for the Connecticut region. So I oversee, um, you know, the our clinics in Amherst, South Windsor, Guilford, and Worcester and Milford and also our inpatient unit in Rockville. So I don't carry a caseload of my own anymore. Although I really love still being involved in cases where the clinicians may need a little extra support or um, it may be a patient that has some um, challenging issues that requires, um, you know, me to step in a couple of times to a session to sort of help move them along or help make changes to the treatment plan. Uh, So I definitely still continue to see patients that way, which I absolutely love. So I, I get to support our patients and also support our clinicians. Um, I supervise our assistant program directors that are um, responsible for the day-to-day operations and the assistant program directors supervise the clinicians. Um, So, um, but sometimes I still will, will supervise a clinician here and there um, depending on um, their licensure needs and things like that. I guess what I was wondering is a lot of people think of a doctor, you know, making sure the vital signs of the person are okay and, and, you know, basic needs. And then people, at least I, cause I'm a dietitian understand, you know, the dietitian's role, but I think more often the mental aspect of the counselor, or the psychologist gets lost. 
Um, so could you explain a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the role of the clinician in eating disorder treatment is really to first and foremost establish a therapeutic alliance. What the research tells us is that the best indicator of, of prognosis is the therapeutic alliance. Right. So um, really, you know, we try to match a clinician's skills and passion with the particular and individualized struggles of a particular patient. So, you know, we we do put thought into case assignment and the clinician is responsible for meeting with the patient one to two times a week in our PHP programs. They, they meet twice a week in our IOP programs. They meet once a week, but the clinician really establishes that therapeutic Alliance provides psychoeducation on eating disorders um, and really, you know, works to place behavior modification into the treatment plan. Right. And yeah. So you mentioned PHP and IOP, which yes. are partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient. Correct. And Walden also offers inpatient. And yeah. residential. And residential. Yes. Can you explain a little about like the different stages of treatment Absolutely. And, and what might qualify someone for needing one or the other? Yeah. So that's a really good question. And I think oftentimes what we see is a lot of folks... Um, use inpatient and residential interchangeably yeah. and there's actually a really big difference and so I think that's really important to understand so inpatient is actually hospitalized care so our inpatient facilities and and true inpatient facilities are locked inpatient units right and so these are facilities where um, folks eating disorders have gotten to the point where they need 24-hour care including 24-hour medical oversight right. um, and so our unit in Waltham, Massachusetts is what you would consider a freestanding psychiatric mm -hmm. hospital, meaning it's not embedded in a general hospital. So although um, we can provide support for patients that require um, nasogastric tube feeds, right. if somebody is requiring telemetry, meaning if their heart rate is below 50 yeah. um, or if their blood pressures are low or if they have um, pretty abnormal electrolytes, they would need to be sent out to a medical hospital for those things. Um, however, we can support, um, you know, really high psychiatric needs. So for folks that have suicidal ideation, that have an intent or a plan to harm themselves, and they have an eating disorder, or they're experiencing psychosis, and they have an eating disorder, we can really support them with both of those things. Um, in our facility in Waltham, Mass. In our inpatient facility in Rockville, Vernon, Connecticut, that is embedded in a general hospital. Right. And so... In um, Manchester. In um, Rockville, Rockville, Vernon. Okay. Yeah. And so um, we, our patients can be on telemetry there. If they need IV fluids, they can get that taken care of there. If they are experiencing mild to moderate detox, we can support them with that there. Um, we can support patients at very low body weights. And then again, also um, comorbid psychiatric units. And that's the highest level of that care. is the highest level of care yeah and also extremely low body weights right um, whereas there is a limit to a lower body weight that we can support and that any freestanding psychiatric facility can support but yeah. our unit in Rockville um, is really is truly you know um, very unique and so you know if someone 
is not needing like medical care 24 7 what's the next below that right so then residential would be the next below okay. that i think and a so lot of times that gets confused it does it gets very confusing to folks and we'll hear them say i need inpatient when really there aren't those medical needs present and so then we explain so residential is 24 7 staffing mm-hmm. um, but it's not necessarily 24 7 medical care although there is access to 24 7 care there is somebody that would be on call but that person isn't present 24-7 in the way that medical staff would be present 24-7 at an inpatient facility, right? So so the residential level of care is, you know, really, again, can support low body weights but would not be able to support somebody requiring a nasogastric tube feed. Um, So they would have to be fairly medically stable in order to, you know, be appropriate for the residential level of care. And it really is something that we use for folks that just aren't able to break the cycle of their eating disorder in the lower levels of care. So they need the support of staff 24-7 in order to refrain from using eating disorder behaviors. They need right. to be observed and have less access to things in order to refrain from using those behaviors. Yeah, like a daily appointment even isn't going to be enough for them. Correct, correct. And so after residential, is that PHP? Yes. And then the step down from residential would be PHP or partial hospitalization. And that's Monday through Friday for six hours. Okay. So sort of like a job. It is a job. It is. It is definitely a full-time job. And so if someone is like, you know, I want to continue working and, and they're okay to do that. Is IOP appropriate or is it just outpatient after PhD? Yeah, so we actually have a lot of folks that work during the day and come to our IOP programs in the evening. Okay. Um, And at at the IOP level of care, at that point, we would ask their primary care physician to be the primary medical provider. So they wouldn't be seeing our nurse practitioners um, at the IOP level of care. And so it's really important that, um, you know, we have a very open and communicative relationship with their primary care physician. And do you offer outpatient here or is outpatient uh, only by other, you know, individual providers? So actually a lot of our clinicians run their outpatient practices here in the oh, facility. Okay. So our patients can step down to outpatient. So even though it's not technically Walden, it is still the clinician they've been working with. That's and really our clinicians helpful. can just have their, they just run their private practices out of our space yeah it's probably nice for the patient too to have a little continuity absolutely absolutely and we also offer um, alumni support groups once a week that are free of charge as well to um to offer our patients okay um so that's a lot of options and i know um for for patients that i've known and for myself when you're looking for care it can be really overwhelming what do you suggest to parents or uh caregivers or patients themselves for like how to decide what they need or who to contact yeah I think that's one of the really unique things about Walden is that we offer an entire system of care um, under the same umbrella and so as you mentioned it is very stressful to seek care to start care and so the wonderful thing is that once a Walden patient always a Walden patient and they don't have to retell their story every time they start a new level of care and oftentimes um, people need to you know sort of hodgepodge their treatment together so they do inpatient somewhere resi somewhere else and then PHP and IOP somewhere else and it's difficult to um, Um, you know, experience possibly different philosophies, different approaches to meal plans, um, and also have to retell your story every time. So um, we really pride ourselves on our communication, especially within the Walden system. And so that um, that is something really unique that we offer. And I think what's important for patients and families to know is that it's 
always better to say something than nothing. Right. Um, we have a 1-800 number that people can call and ask questions and receive guidance anywhere from, I just want to get information. Can you just tell me what programs you offer? Can you tell me a little bit about eating disorders to, I want to start with scheduling and evaluation. Um, and so every new meeting starts out with an evaluation where we spend time with the potential client and their family and asking them about their history, their family history, and so that we can really together make the decision on what level of care is best so we don't take the approach of you know it's our way or the highway this is the level of care you have to do we very much take into consideration somebody's life and you know we have people that are moms and dads and grandparents and aunts and uncles and have responsibilities outside of treatment in their lives and so we don't want to add stress by you know, saying that they have to give up things that that they can't. Um, you know, there are some folks that are able to take FMLA, and we definitely recommend that what when that's that? appropriate. Uh, family, the Family Medical Leave Act. Right. So there are some folks that you know have that as a benefit at their at their places yeah. of employment. However, there are some folks that don't have that benefit yeah. and simply can't not work. So then we definitely can be flexible and say, ideally, you would, you know go to residential or ideally you would come to PHP and we hear that you are a single parent have a family support and so let's try IOP and so we really try to be flexible and so that's why I say without hesitation um, please reach out and and ask because a lot of people make the assumptions well they're gonna say I have to go to the hospital and I can't do that so I'm not gonna bother right Um, and so that that's not the case that we will absolutely work with somebody in their schedule and what's important to them and what we know about eating disorders is that eating disorders also thrive off of isolation and so if somebody has a job that is meaningful to them that's really important to us and we wouldn't want them to to give that up right so you've talked a lot about you know a patient coming in and and the level of care um, but I think a lot of people only think of anorexia when they think of someone coming into uh, inpatient or residential or whatever level it is but I know Walden, you know, treats other types of eating disorders. Can you talk? A yeah, about of course. That? I'm so glad you said that. Whenever I present to um, a group of people and I start with talking about eating disorders, I always say, you know, when you think of eating disorders, what do you think of? And everybody always says anorexia. Yeah. And what's interesting is that anorexia is actually the rarest occurring eating disorder. Right. Um, that's not to say it doesn't occur and that it's not a very dangerous um, and deadly eating disorder, but it's actually the rarest occurring eating disorder. The, the uh, most commonly occurring eating disorder is actually binge eating disorder. Yeah. Which ironically was just included in the most recent edition of the Diagnostic like and Statistical Manual. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And so for the longest time, it was only anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and then the catch-all of eating disorder NOS, which is not otherwise specified. Um, And so I think that um, luckily for us in the the newest revision in the DSM-5 in 2013, they added the OSFED category, which breaks down five other categories of specific eating disorders and also really importantly includes binge eating disorder, which is the most common eating disorder. And so we treat um, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, all of the OSFEDs, which is other specified feeding or eating disorder, and binge eating disorder and also in the DSM-5 um, they added ARFID which is avoidant right. restrictive food eating disorder which in previous editions was feeding disorder NOS and it was in the section of disorders commonly seen in infancy childhood and adolescence and so that's also been a really important conclusion um, in addition to the 2013 uh, because 
a lot of folks were getting children were getting misdiagnosed as failure to thrive when in actuality it's a very real eating disorder yeah it's actually what i work with most commonly um i work mostly in high schools and they're, mm. it's boarding high schools yes and there's all these kids that you know they don't have parents around um they don't really have someone watching them eat and they've ended up avoiding they don't like the texture of that food they don't like this one it's like we've ended up on gluten-free toast and that's it right there's no that's not enough nutrition for you so you talked a little about how it's important that these are in the dsm and obviously so they can be diagnosed but is it also important in terms of insurance absolutely so in the prior to the dsm-5 which came out in 2013 as i mentioned there was only anorexia bulimia and ednos and a lot of times um very well-meaning insurance providers it 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 sort of became this unofficial belief that if it wasn't anorexia or bulimia it wasn't as bad right um when in actuality most people um it's eating disorders are most often a a spectrum right and so a lot of times people float back and forth between all of them at any given time yeah and in 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 essence, you know, restricting your intake is very dangerous. And also binging and purging is very dangerous health wise um, and binging also. So um, even without you purging um, or compensating in any other way is also very dangerous to the body. And there are significant medical complications across all each and every eating disorder diagnosis. Eating disorders have the highest mortality of any other psychiatric illness. And so when you think about it, more people die from eating disorders than substance use disorders, than mood disorders, than schizophrenia, um, than uh, bipolar disorder, all of those things that, that we know entails a lot of impulsivity and in dangerous situations still more people die from eating disorders and so certainly now with the changes in the dsm-5 you were able to say that okay so somebody isn't a significantly low body weight they still are barely eating yeah um, and everybody and, and malnourishment and not eating isn't okay to do no matter what your weight is and i think there is this myth and the stigma about being um, a quote-unquote healthy weight and assuming that somebody who is underweight is healthier when actually the research says the opposite Um, and that we can't assume that just because somebody is a certain weight or may not be underweight that they aren't malnourished we see the same medical complications with somebody who would be technically classified using their BMI as overweight or obese that is restricting their intake and has abnormal vital signs and has abnormal labs right so so it's helpful for the diagnosis and maybe insurance companies recognizing the diagnosis um have do you have any like specific cases where someone was like able to get care and had been denied care or something like that absolutely so i think um we see that now a lot with the um with the osfed diagnosis it's um atypical anorexia right so that basically means that all the criteria for anorexia nervosa are met except they're not a significantly low body weight yeah because so everyone's different <laughs> that's right so everybody's body's different everybody grows at a different rate and what's a significantly low weight for one person may not be a significantly low weight for somebody else, um, depending on their growth pattern. So, um, and that's why we use growth charts to really determine what somebody's appropriate percentage should be, you know? Um, yeah. And, um, so yeah, so, so with, um, in the DSM four, so prior to 2013, in order to be diagnosed with anorexia nervosa, you had to be 85% of your ideal body weight or less. So if you were 87%, you couldn't be diagnosed with anorexia. Yeah. And 87%, even 90% could be a really significantly low weight for somebody, yeah. depending on what where their weight had been all their lives. And also... 
Additional criteria, you had to be amenorrheic, meaning you had to have the loss of your period for three months of more to be diagnosed with anorexia, which of course meant that we could never diagnose men or boys with I just, anorexia. I just started laughing because it's so, <laughs> so silly. Like, why would you think that you had to be a woman to mm-hmm. have this disorder? Right. And and there are still some folks that, 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 that do believe that. Yeah. Um, and which is why we, um, and specifically myself, spend a lot of time doing presentations and outreach and education in our community. Um, and, and people just don't have, you know, easy access to this information. I think the illness still, still carries a lot of shame and stigma. Oh, yeah. And it's something that people don't talk about enough and don't teach enough in schools. Yeah. I think, like, when I was in high school, our eating disorder education was watching a video about like a boy who had anorexia so that was at least you know yeah. at least it was a, a boy yeah but then like a girl who had bulimia and that was it yeah it was like the no. lifetime movies yeah like one of those <laughs> like the boy played hockey or something and was mm-hmm. like skating around um but yeah that was it there was no like this could be you or anything else um so stepping back a little i've talked with other people on the podcast about um treatment for someone in anorexia with anorexia uh but i've never talked to someone about treatment for binge eating can you talk a little bit about how you even treat binge eating disorder absolutely so um what the research tells us is that cbt um and on specifically cbte is the best practice for treating binge eating disorder so um the the our go-to for the best practices is really a lot of the work done by dr christopher fairburn And he wrote this book called Overcoming Binge Eating. Mm -hmm. And we use that in a lot of ways to structure our binge eating disorder program. So we, although our our folks with binge eating disorder join the milieu um, for partial hospitalization program, residential and inpatient. Does that um, mean everybody else? Yes, that okay. means everybody else. Just to help everyone. Yes, thank you. Um, we do have a separate IOP program for folks with binge eating okay. disorder, just to give them space to address some of the issues. Yeah, it's um, very different in um, some ways. That, that absolutely that that we see um, more specifically with binge eating disorder, and so it is a six week program that is is fairly structured again based off um, Christopher Fairburn's work, and um, we use the CBT and CBTE and um, we find that we have great success. Um, There is also great success in treating uh, binge eating disorder at the outpatient level of care and then when outpatient um, doesn't seem to be enough in order to help people break the cycle then they have access to all of our levels of care as well. Right. Does intuitive eating have any play in binge eating specifically or do you kind of use it for all? Sure. So so I sort of think of I think intuitive eating is very important to teach. And I and I certainly think of that as the long term goal. Okay. However, if somebody has been binge eating for quite a long period of time, it is not always realistic that they can just jump into intuitive eating. So we first focus on breaking the cycle of binge eating. Okay. So the very first thing we do is we have them just start tracking their binges. Right. Just start tracking their eating disorder behaviors and just start tracking even their intake so keeping a food journal of some sorts or tracking of some sort we first start with building insight noticing patterns and trying to break the cycle yes the long-term goal is to eat intuitively but um but we have some work to do first typically okay that makes a lot of sense because i just remember i had bulimia and i remember sitting 
in a therapist's office and she was like, just listen to when you're hungry. Just listen to your body. You can do that, right? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know what hunger <laughs> is. Of course you like, don't. <laughs> of course you don't. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've struggled with an eating disorder, then your hunger fullness signals are just not accurate. Yeah. And because you have taught your body and your brain not to pay attention um, or, um, or doing, you know, the opposite of what it tells you. So it's not realistic to ask folks to eat intuitively out of the gate. Um, there are some folks that are able to get there quickly. Um, but typically if somebody has had an eating disorder for a period of time, it, um, it's not a realistic immediate goal, definitely a long-term goal for sure. Okay, cool. So I know you did some work with, um, you know, getting patients from the treatment space to like regular life again. Yes. Um, and the transition. Can you talk a little bit about like what struggles come up there and like what you focus on to help? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, part of a program that that I have um, developed is um, an outing or excursion program. I developed it for the Renfrew Center also when I right. worked there. Um, and so I definitely have brought that to the to the clinics here at Walden. And so really the idea is for our folks to not need treatment anymore and to be able to improve their ability to function in the community yeah. and so I believe that it, to do that we need to have them practice in the in the environment right yeah. so when our folks eat here obviously there are staff there to support them they're with other people that understand however that's not quote-unquote real life yeah and so you eat by yourself sometimes that's and, right yeah. that's right and 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 it's a different experience to be out in the world. So we try to get um, our clients the closest to that as possible. And so we will do outings. So we will take, and so they will have, it's the best of both worlds. They have the staff support. Um, however, they're still in an environment that they would be in with their friends or family or loved ones. And so we will do a breakfast outing, lunch like at outing at a restaurant, okay. a diner. We will have potlucks and have people bring food in. Oh, that's so cool. We'll have pizza parties. Um, and we will even do outings to malls to shop, try on clothing. All the things that, you know, in the everyday life can be really difficult if you have an eating disorder. Yeah. Well, I've never heard that they did outings to malls, but that is such a good idea. I think shopping was like the last thing I was able to do again. I bet. I bet. Yeah. It's really important. Um, so... I know a lot of times there's relapses, you know, with any mental illness, sure. but certainly with eating disorders. How often do you have repeat patients? So in the in the and this is where adolescents and adults, um, we do see different outcomes. OK, so for our adolescent population, we use family based therapy, which is an adaptation of the Maudsley method, which mm -hmm. comes from uh, the Maudsley Hospital in, in London, which um, started in the 70s. And in the 90s, um, doctors Locke and LaGrange brought uh, brought it here to the US. And so we refer to it as family based therapy or FBT. Mm -hmm. And so that has shown um, research wise to be the most effective therapy for folks with for adolescents with eating disorders it was initially designed for anorexia um, however we find that it is effective for bulimia nervosa and even binge eating disorder we've adapted it here to use with any eating disorder and basically that we take all control over food away from the adolescents and empower the parents to sort of regain control of their lives their homes their yeah. um, their dinner times and work to empower and educate the parents so that they're bringing treatment home with them right. instead of becoming dependent on a treatment facility so um, and we have been able to also adapt that to use with our adults. So, for example, an adult that hasn't been able to be successful in our program independently, we will ask um, 
somebody in their family to get involved. Sometimes that adult is a young adult um, in their late teens or even early 20s. And so we will ask that a parent get involved. Sometimes it is an older adult and we have a spouse get involved um, or another caring parent that can help them sort of pack their lunches, things that maybe their eating disorder keeps them from from doing well in the moment. And so with adolescents, we do see that our, um, and our outcome studies support this also, that 75 to 90% of our adolescents remain weight restored even at the year follow-up. Wow. With adults, um, we see higher recidivism rates. I think some of that is due to, we can attribute to just lack of specialized care, right? So a lot of our folks have been to multiple prior to coming to us. They've been to multiple outpatient providers that didn't specialize, that may have checked that box on their insurance panel that says I specialize in eating disorders, but really don't. Um, And again, these providers are well-meaning and think like, oh, I did substance abuse. I can do eating disorders or how different could it be? And truly don't realize the specialized training um, that is necessary to adequately treat these eating disorders. Also, there's not always specialized treatment available. And so a lot of people have no other choice but to attend a mood disorder program that just dabbles in the eating disorder. And so their eating disorder, again, goes um, improperly treated for quite a time. And what we know is the longer somebody has an eating disorder, the harder it can be. It's definitely not impossible. We see it happen every day. I believe, and we at Walden believe, that somebody can attain a full, fully recovered life, free from an eating disorder, and we see it happen all the time. And specialized care is necessary. So, you know, I'd say that we we see almost, you know, 30, 30, and 30, that about 30% of folks... um, aren't able to get well. 30% are able to get mostly well and improve their functioning and still may, you know, see traces of their eating disorder and that 30% make a full recovery. And then unfortunately, 10% of our population does pass away from their eating disorder, which, um, which we can't ignore. Yeah, not at all. Um, so that kind of is a good lead in for me. What is your low light in this industry? You've talked a lot about how you like it and it, it was exciting to you in a place you wanted to be, but obviously it's really, really hard with 10% of the population dying. Do you have like a day or something that was like the hardest day for you? So I think, um, I think anytime a patient passes away and of course that has happened is, is a hard day, yeah. not only for me, but the staff, um, Everyone. and also in a supervisory role to, um, you know, clinicians blame themselves, right. And think what else could I have done? Um, I did something wrong. I, I did something I did wrong by the family or by the patient in this way. And so not only is it hard to lose somebody that you care about, you know, we care about our patients and, and it's hard to lose them in that way. Um, you know, I think a, um, a hard day was earlier in my career when I didn't have any say as to, you know, what patient would be discharged or not discharged. And I did have an experience, not at Walden, but a, a treatment facility in, in my history that kicked a patient out that I, I just didn't agree with. Right. Um, and, you know, I I believe that everybody deserves um, equal opportunity at treatment. And I think um, the hard thing and also why I'm so grateful to be in a position now to be able to make those decisions and to supervise so many staff is that I think what people don't realize is that every time a patient comes back to treatment, it can be a very different experience. Right. So we can't make judgments on people by what their struggles were maybe the first time we saw them and that every admission 
patients will come in and they will discharge. They won't follow treatment recommendations. And that can be very frustrating as a clinician um, to see somebody who is so capable and so wonderful and who isn't listening and following your recommendations. That can be really frustrating. Um, and yet um, every time they come back, they make a little bit more progress, a little more progress. And um, and I think that can be hard too um, in those moments where you feel helpless as a human yeah. and as a clinician. Um, and you realize that um, you know, you can spend a lot of energy providing knowledge and support. And at the end of the day, um, people can and will make their own choices. Right, right. And do you have a highlight? I really just, this is my dream job. And I really just, every day it's something new. Every day is an opportunity to for example, later today, I'm going and giving a presentation um, at a child guidance center. And so I love the fact that I get to educate the community and bring knowledge to pediatricians offices, primary care physicians offices, schools, guidance centers, um, state hospitals, even the Department of Corrections and um, get to just provide education for the community, for providers, for family members. Um, I love being able to help people and supervise clinicians. I'm also a certified eating disorder specialist and an, and an approved supervisor. So I get to also help train other people to be certified eating oh, disorder specialists. Awesome. And I just feel so grateful to have a job that I love and that really is much more rewarding, um, than it is anything else. Yeah, that's awesome. And if you were to give like one piece of advice to someone struggling with an eating disorder, what would it be? To never give up, to never, ever, ever give up. Um, I think that, you know, what we see again, as I spoke to that, it often takes multiple attempts. And I think that a lot of people still think like I went to the hospital or I went to resi or I went to treatment and it didn't work. Um, and I think that every experience can be different and you can get a little bit better. I've seen people make full recoveries and sometimes it takes a few years to get there. Um, but ask for help and never, never give up. That's very good advice. I think a lot of people get discouraged after the first time. Yeah, absolutely. And so my last question, I ask everybody, um, because for me and for most people who've had an eating disorder, food becomes like this evil, fearful thing. But uh, we should love food, at least most foods. Mm -hmm. uh, so what's your favorite food? My favorite food? Yeah. Italian food is my favorite food. Okay. And sort of my go-to is chicken parm. Or what's almost becoming a tie with chicken parm lately <laughs> <clears throat> is um, chicken... Um, it's called something different no matter where I go. Chicken Florentine, chicken Francaise, but anything that has like a lemony, buttery sauce. Oh, that's sauce. really good. And anything with a lot of garlic. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. This was really fun. I Thank you. Lot. Thanks so much. And thank you for listening. It means so much to have uh, a lot of dedicated listeners. So if you have any questions, comments, anything you want discussed on the podcast, it's your podcast. So please reach out. Again, my email is worthyourwhilenutrition at gmail.com. And my website is worthyourwhile.com. So go on, check out some of my blogs, comment, whatever. Send me an email and I hope to hear from all of you soon. Have a great week.